You're listening to Teach Me Thy Statutes, a production of the Ephesus School Network. Blessed art thou, O Lord, teach me thy statutes. The company of the angels was amazed. Hi, this is Father Aaron Warwick with Jason Everett, and you are listening to the Teach Me Thy Statutes podcast, episode number 131. Today's reading is from Luke chapter 3, verses 19 through 22. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by John for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he shut up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form as a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Let's begin today, Father, discussing verse 21, if we could, where Jesus is baptized. And of course, he was without sin, and and therefore he wasn't in need of baptism. So this act was meant to accomplish something else. Would you discuss what the purpose of Jesus' baptism was, Father? Yes, and as you mentioned, uh, Jesus is not in need of baptism in the way the rest of us who sin are in need of baptism. However, by being baptized himself, Jesus does two things. The first is that he sets the example for us, and this, I believe, is important. If you think about it, Jesus experiences human fullness, and by that I mean he experiences everything that we humans experience, but of course he does so without sinning. So Jesus experienced being an embryo. He experienced being a baby, a child, a young man, an adult. He experienced pain and tears and death, joy and happiness, so it's fitting that he also experiences baptism, setting for us a model. But in addition to that, many of the church fathers note that Jesus was baptized to sanctify the waters for our own baptism so that it would be a baptism for cleansing of sin. And this has historically been celebrated in the Orthodox Church on the Feast of Theophany on January 6th. In fact, a lot of Christians don't know this today, but that feast on January 6th, Theophany, is so ancient it actually predates the celebration of Christmas as its own separate feast, which of course is on December 25th. So at one time, the celebration of Christ's birth and his baptism were celebrated together in one church feast, that one being on January 6th, And we can see the similarities between those two feasts. In both his birth and his baptism, Jesus takes upon himself material creation and he sanctifies it, raises it to God. As we see he did here at his baptism through this prayer, and then when we see the heavens as a result of that prayer opening up, as Luke tells us. That's a helpful explanation, Father. Thank you. In this event of the baptism, we also have a clear reference to the Trinity in the final verse from our reading today with Jesus praying and the heavens opening and with the Father's voice and the Spirit descending in bodily form as a dove. And this concept of the Trinity is one that really is difficult to grasp for Christians, let alone people from other faiths. An example, Muslims say that we're polytheists because of our Trinitarian doctrine. And over the years, I've heard numerous and sometimes really tortured explanations of how uh, best to grasp this concept. So, Father, would you help us understand God as Trinity, at least as best we can within our limitations? Yeah, so I I like the way that you say this, tortured explanations, because that's the truth. I think it's primarily the truth because the average believer, Christian believer, really has no idea what they're talking about if we're going to be as theologically precise 
as those theologians who delineated the doctrine of the Trinity. It's a complex dogma, and it's why it took decades, if not at least a full century or even more, we could argue, to be worked out. And even then, you still had influential theologians who were unhappy or upset with the final product, what we now call the Nicene Creed, which is more accurately the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed, because that final creed is the production of those two councils, both Nicaea and Constantinople. Would you uh, maybe elaborate more on what you mean by the dissatisfaction or unhappiness with the final product? Sure. I think there's really two primary groups, as I would classify them, who were unhappy with the final Nicene Creed. The first is a group that became identified as heretics, and I don't want to go too much into that and get sidetracked. But the second group, I believe most importantly to highlight uh, the complexity of the situation, was a group of people who remained in the church and who by no means were considered heretics. So, for example, Gregory the Theologian, a highly respected saint and theologian in our church as well as in the Roman Catholic Church, walked out of the Second Ecumenical Council in anger that the council was not accepting the word homoousius, the Greek word homoousius, to describe the relationship between the Father and the Holy Spirit. And what does that word mean, and why was it important and controversial? The word means of the same substance or same essence, of one substance or one essence. So in the Creed, we say that the Son is of one essence with the Father. And this term was controversial because it's not a biblical term. It doesn't appear in the New Testament. Regardless, the term was accepted by the First Ecumenical Council, and St. Gregory the Theologian believed it should be stated also that the Holy Spirit is of one essence with the Father. However, the Council did not say that in the final statement, again, what we now call the Nicene Creed. Instead, it refers to the Holy Spirit as the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. So there's never a mention of this term, homoousiates, of one essence. And why did the Council not state the same term uh, of one essence about the Holy Spirit as it did about the Son? Well, it, it appears the reason was so as not to create more division and controversy. The Church really suffered after the First Council with various emperors and patriarchs vacillating between accepting that first Nicene Council or rejecting it, and specifically accepting or rejecting the creed that they formed. And when the church was bogged down arguing about complex theological formulations, it cannot do its most important work, which is to put the gospel message of Christ into action. And of course, we know that's the most important work, putting the gospel message into action, because on Judgment Sunday each year we read from Matthew 25, which tells us the basis of our judgment, that story of the parable of the sheep and the goats. And the basis of that judgment is not whether we formulate the precise wording for the creed, but whether we lift up the weak and downtrodden. So St. Basil, as well as others, finally became content to help unite the church on not insisting that this word homoousius be used with the Spirit. And this allowed the case to be more or less settled with the majority of Christians at that time, accepting the Council's formulation by not using that word. So in getting back to your original question, it was essentially, how can we not be considered polytheists if we proclaim that three persons are one God? Again, I, I don't want to go through the entire theology behind this, but for me, the most important and convincing argument was made by another Gregory, St. Gregory of Nyssa, also highly respected saint and theologian. He explained that with the three persons of the Trinity, there's never a time when the will 
of those persons is opposed. Their wills are always and forever aligned. You know, contrast that, for example, with me and my wife. We can say that in marriage the two become one flesh, but we recognize it's still different than the concept of the Trinity as three being one. And the reason for that is that most of the time, my wife and I have a different will, a different direction that we're heading, different thoughts and intentions running through our heads. And so we're properly viewed as as being two. But with the three persons of the Trinity, this is never the case. They're always of the same will, the same mind, and thus they may be rightly referred to as one and not three gods. I appreciate that explanation and and also that reminder that the primary aim of our Christian life is not in developing or conveying theology, but in modeling the life of Jesus Christ and of putting that into practice. At the same time, it seems that a certain level of theology or of correct thinking is important. Uh, And is that the case here, Father? And if so, how does the theology of the Trinity inform our way of life? Yeah, great question, Jason. I think the doctrine of the Trinity can be expressed in a way that's highly beneficial to us, especially uh, those of us who are Americans. As I often say, the primary sin of our society, really a cancer in my opinion, is the sin of individualism. We can see that individualism underlies almost all of our societal problems and sins. And in light of this, I believe one of the most important things for us to express about the doctrine of the Trinity is the understanding of community, that even God exists within the community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And taken in this way, we can understand then why living our lives like Jesus is so important, the most important thing that we can do. Not what we say about Him or about God, but actually modeling His behavior and recognizing that we should behave for the benefit of the entire community. And this is why, for example, St. John Chrysostom emphasizes almsgiving, or more literally, from the Greek, doing merciful acts and doing merciful acts for others as the highest virtue and the highest ascetic endeavor. It's because it benefits not only the individual performing such acts, but benefits others, the community as well. So for this reason, while occasionally showing a willingness to entertain these precise theological discussions, I much prefer to talk about and to emphasize how we should live our lives with an eye most especially towards being merciful to others. Thank you, Father. Today we began by discussing the baptism of Jesus and its purpose. While Jesus was without sin and not in need of baptism, he did experience human fullness, which included baptism, thus setting for us a model. Jesus' baptism also served to sanctify the waters for our own baptism so that it would be a baptism for the cleansing of sin. And so in the same way as shown with his birth and incarnation, in baptism Jesus takes upon himself material creation and sanctifies it. We then discussed how to best understand God as Trinity and the difficulty that entails. Of most importance, Father Aaron stated that within the three persons of the Trinity, their wills are always and forever aligned. And unlike in marriage, where husband and wife become one flesh, they still have their own will. But with the Trinity, this is never the case, and thus they may be rightly referred to as one God. Father also stressed that in the doctrine of the Trinity, we see that God exists within the community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The three persons of the Godhead do not operate as individuals, as is so often the case in our society today. 
And within this understanding of community, we should model his behavior through our merciful acts for others, which, as St. John Chrysostom stressed, is the highest virtue. Thank you for listening to Teach Me Thy Statutes. We hope you tune in next week for a new episode. Alleluia, glory to thee, O God. Alleluia, alleluia.